Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. And that's a great affirmation that uh, is so true. The Lord promises He's never going to walk out on us, no matter what we do. And if you think about exactly what we're going to talk about in the book of Exodus, uh, God kept that promise over and over again to His people. I'm going to ask you if you would to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 12 and read from this passage of Scripture in a few moments. Uh, we're moving into a sermon series entitled Commissioned. Uh, we could call it Commissioned Volume 2. Uh, many of you were here a number of years ago when we revisited and essentially restated our mission here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, which is to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. That's just an updated way or a Wilkesboro Baptist Church way of saying that we believe our mission is the Great Commission. It's what God has called us to do to make disciples. We do so by worshiping, learning, serving, and replicating. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different sections of the book of Exodus and God's redemption story with His people in the Old Testament and how that redemption story mirrors the mission that God has given His people in the New Testament. That would be us. So we're going to picture that and we're going to begin that with worship, the subject of worship. Do you realize that origins matter where you come from matters? Uh, just let me give you a really simple illustration for that. Uh, when I was growing up and there was a basketball game on television, we knew what we were going to be watching. The kids didn't get a pick. My dad got to pick that we were going to watch the basketball game or the baseball game or the football game. That's just the way it was in my house. Interestingly enough, When there's a basketball game on, or a football game on, or a baseball game on, I want to watch. Guess what my boys have learned in our house? That that's what's going to be on in that particular event. I pick that up from my dad. It's part of who I am. uh, And it's part of who my boys may not become exactly in that sense, but they'll remember that. My mom, for example, in another illustration, she loved to read. So from a very young child, she would put us on her lap and she would read to us over and over again every single night. And that developed in me and my brother a love for reading. And I still love to read. I enjoy reading and get a lot out of reading. So the way that my mom and dad approached me as a child, who I am, it comes from who they were and how they raised me. But origins matter not just in the way that we were raised, our parents and where we came from, the county we grew up in, the town we grew up in, our elementary school and teachers and high school. Origins matter at a much deeper level. And if you really look at the pages of Scripture, the origin of God's people or the the picture of God redeeming a people doesn't necessarily begin in the New Testament with the people that He called out and saved and redeemed as far as Christians are concerned. That story goes all the way back. Really, it begins with Abraham. If you want to get really honest, it goes all the way back to Adam. But in terms of His people, His called out people, we really see their origin story in the book of Exodus. One way to describe it would be that the book of Exodus is when God went public. If you think about the book of Genesis, God had a man, Abraham or Noah or Joseph or Jacob, and he spoke to that man, that family, and they followed him and they obeyed him, or sometimes they didn't, right, in the book of Genesis. But God had a relationship with that particular family. Of course, they went on to Egypt. Joseph went down there uh, as a slave, rescued his family because God had raised him up to be second in command in Egypt. And then 400 or so years later, 
And people of Israel, God's family, God's chosen family, found themselves in Israel under slavery. Enslaved by Pharaoh who hated them. They had grown and they had grown and they had grown so far that the, that the Egyptians despised the Israelites. They enslaved them. They controlled them. They overruled them. And what happens in the story of the book of Exodus is God shows up and doesn't just show up to Moses in a conversation. And He doesn't just show up to a group of people. He shows up to an entire nation. In fact, the great greatest nation on planet earth at that point in human history were the people of Egypt. They were powerful. They were in charge. They had all these deities. They had all these gods. They were rulers of lands and peoples. And God shows up and he shows out in the book of Exodus. One commentator puts it this way. He said, the story of Exodus is not one that a nation would have invented about itself. From beginning to end, it glorifies God at the expense of Israel. God chose a weak, dispirited slave people whom the justice of the world had passed by. For them, there was no protecting law. Their only claim on God's mercy was their misfortune and their deep need of Him. False gods would have chosen the strong and the wealthy. These could have repaid with magnificent temples and generous offerings. But God chose a people who were not a people. Just a motley crew of slaves to carry His message and to bless the world. Truly, His ways... Or past finding out. So when God shows up in the book of Exodus and says to Moses, Moses, here's what I want you to do. You're, you're 80 years old, I realize that, but you're 40 years old, rather. I realize that, but I, I want you uh, to go back and I want you to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Stunned Moses. But Moses went back. He was faithful to what God said. He showed up and he told Pharaoh, remember those famous words? Let my people Go And that started this conversation, this interaction between Pharaoh and Moses and God, where God, over the course of ten different plagues, totally destroyed the Egyptian religious system. He defied the deities that they worshipped. He he destroyed their faith in in their false gods, and ultimately their faith in Pharaoh, and brought them to a place, the people of Israel to a place, where 600,000 men, possibly up to 2 million total people, could be rescued from slavery. And in truth, the story of Exodus is a story about... Worship. In fact, the final plague that God brought upon the Egyptian people was the plague of Passover. And the thing that made the plague of Passover distinct from all the other ones is that the other plagues God brought upon the people of Egypt as a form of judgment. In several of those plagues, he made distinctions. He said, I'm going to judge Egypt, and I'm not going to judge the people of Israel in the land of Goshen. God made a distinction. And it was clear to all the Egyptians that they were getting judged and the people of Israel were getting off. They were getting off scot-free. They weren't experiencing the same plague. But the plague of Passover was something that Israel had to participate in. God gave them an assignment. He said to them, I'm going to pass over the Egyptians. I'm going to pass over the land of Egypt. And you have to worship me in this particular pattern. And if you worship me in this particular pattern, then when I pass over and when I strike dead all the firstborn of Egypt, I will not strike dead your firstborn. And so the act of redemption, of rescue, that God brought upon the people of Egypt, and that God protected and defended and rescued His people, their participation was an act of worship. We're going to read from 
Exodus chapter 12, where God speaks to Moses and describes to the people of Israel what they should do. Because there's an intersection here. There's an intersection between worship and redemption, God's rescue and our response to God's rescue that underscores who you and I are supposed to be as followers of Christ. If it's our job to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus, that job begins with us recognizing our redemption and then responding to our redemption in appropriate worship. And worship guides and drives the way that we live out our faith as followers of Christ. We're going to see how that plays itself out in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you till all the congregation of Israel. And on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now I want you to notice this. It was a lamb for a family or for a group of families, a goat for a family or a group of families, but it was a congregational act. In other words, every family had a responsibility to worship, but it was the whole congregation of the people of Israel at twilight that were to be acting in congregational solidarity, in congregational worship. It was a gathered group of people that was supposed to worship God in a specific way. Notice what they are to do. Verse 7, Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So the picture is they are to kill their lamb or their goat at the doorpost, so blood would be down at the bottom, and then they're to take a hyssop branch, and they're to dip in the blood and wipe it on the sides of the doorpost and on the top frame of the doorpost. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh at night roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled on water, but roasted its head with its legs and inner parts, and you shall let the, none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Notice verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, uh, that's girded up your loins, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Did you catch that statement? I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God is making a distinction between the deities that are not, the gods that are not real, the false gods and false idols of the Egyptian peoples. And he's saying, they're not real. I am. And you're going to do this in respect and in worship of me who is real and who is right. I'm going to prove that to you by what I'm going to accomplish. Verse 13, notice this. The blood shall be a sign for you. On, a sign for you. Did you catch that? A sign for you. It's a testimony. It's, it's as if the people of Israel are saying about themselves and about their act of worship, this is us acknowledging that we belong to someone who is not the God here. He is the God everywhere. He is different than all these Egyptian deities. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. First intersection between worship and redemption is this. Worship reflects redemption. Listen, a worship service that does not point to the redemption we've experienced is not a genuine worship service. 
What do I mean by that? The worship that we give to the Lord needs to reflect the redemption we've received from God. That's what the Passover was all about. It was an instituted worship service that took place annually where the people of Israel were supposed to consistently reflect the fact that they had been redeemed. The Lord was going to judge the Egyptian deities. He was going to judge the final Egyptian deity, which would have been Pharaoh, who worked very hard to make himself out to be a god. And that's why he pushed back against God. That's why he said he hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people of Israel go. And God said, I'm going to judge the littlest of Egypt, the the slave girl. I'm going to take her firstborn and I'm going to take Pharaoh's firstborn. I'm going to show you that there is no difference between Pharaoh and anyone else. He's not a deity like no one else is a deity. But my people I'm going to treat differently. And I'm going to treat differently as a reflection of the worship that they're going to bring back to me. They're going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to see the blood. I'm going to pass over them. And that act of worship is to be reflective of the redemption that the people of Israel were anticipating and would then experience as you read on in the book of Exodus. So what happens when we gather for worship? Folks, when we gather for worship, our worship service is to reflect the redemption that we have received. It's to be focused on what God has done for us. That's why our songs are about Jesus. That's why we sing about salvation. Because when we are here as a gathered body of believers, we should testify to one another and about the Lord Jesus that we've received redemption, that we've been rescued, that we've been changed, that we've been forgiven, that we have been made new. Our worship, even in the acts of ordinances, which we're going to partake in a few minutes, the Lord's Supper is a picture of redemption. It's a testimony of what Jesus has done. The act of baptism, the ordination or ordinance of baptism, when we put someone under the water and raise them up out of the water, is a picture of the redemption that we've received. Even when we give, and some of you give online, some of you give in the offering box as you exit the sanctuary, some of you drop it off in the, in the little uh, mail slot on our door, but when you give, it's an act of worship. It's a reflection of, I'm honoring God with this tribute to the Lord, to the, for the Lord to use as a reflection of the fact that I've been redeemed and that I've been changed. Let me, let me tell you what worshiping that reflects your redemption will do. When you come into a gathered body of believers as the church of Jesus Christ and you remember who you were and you remember where, what path you were on and you remember the sins you were engaged in and you remember the life you lived and you, then you remember that God sought you out, rescued you, changed you, forgave you, washed you, cleansed you and then you look around the congregation of other believers and you see so-and-so who you did some of that stuff with, or you watch do other stuff and you say, well, that that person's here too and I'm here. It's a testimony of the redemption of God. And what does that do when we reflect on the fact that God's redeemed us? You know what it does for me? It opens my mouth to sing. Because how can I not testify to the greatness of God's work when I remember the greatness of His redemptive work in my own life. Folks, our worship is to reflect the redemption that we have. Even the way that we handle our worship services. Why do we pray in our worship services? Because it's an act of humility and bowing before God and acknowledging that He's great. It's an act of worship that reflects on our redemption. Why do we begin and end our worship services with Scripture and show Scripture all the way throughout worship services? Some weeks it's up to five or six 
six different passages of Scripture. But because the Scripture focuses on the God who is redeemed and focuses on the redemption we've experienced. Folks, our worship should reflect our redemption. And when it does, it's the starting point for us being able to live out our lives on a daily basis, kind of a weekly basis, of living out our mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Let me say, secondly, worship remembers redemption. And skip down with me to verse 24. God continues to explain the rite of Passover. And then he says in verse 24, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. This is something you're to do now, and you're to do every year from now for all time and eternity. Did you catch that? Forever, you're to observe this act. Now, the Lord changed it, thankfully, in the New Testament. We'll come to that in a few moments. Verse 25, And when you come to the land, the Lord will give you, as He has promised you, you shall keep this service. So two times in two verses, the Lord has told the, the people of Israel, this is something that's to be permanent. You're to do this over and over again. Verse 26, When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel when He struck the Egyptians, but He spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So Moses is giving instructions, the final instructions. He's saying, this is what you're to do. This is how you're to do it. You're to put the blood on the doorpost. And then he says, and in the future, you got to get this for just a second. The people of Israel are still slaves. Do you get this? It's the last night that they're slaves, but they're still slaves. They haven't been told to go yet. They haven't been released to go yet. And yet, Moses has the audacity to say to them, Hey folks, this is the last act of worship that you're going to have before you leave. That's why you've got to have your belt on and be ready. You've got to be ready to leave because you're going to be sent out here in just a little bit. And when you are rescued and free, this is something we're going to do over and over and over and over again as a testimony to the great thing that God's going to do. And even though the people of Israel had a stunning lack of faith and trust in God over and over and over again through the book of Exodus, kind of echoing the song that Dustin sang before I began to preach, even though they had a stunning lack of faith over and over, here, did you catch what they did? They bowed their heads and they worshipped in response to the word of instruction that Moses had given them. They acknowledged what God was... Listen, worship is to remember redemption. It's to focus on redemption. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that worship for us should be both scattered and gathered. Listen, every single one of us should worship God privately. You should have a time where you praise God in your prayers, a time where you pray to God, a time where you read Scripture, a time where you talk to God personally and privately. Private worship, personal worship needs to happen in your life and my life. But gathered worship also needs to happen in your life and my life. This is not just an act for an individual follower of Jesus Christ. This is an act for the body of believers, God's people, to gather together to remember the redemption that they collectively have experienced or corporately have experienced. Do you realize that you and I don't go to church for that phrase for years and years and years and years. We don't go to church. We are the church. 
You know that? You are the church. And what we do is we gather as the church, and we gather as the church to express to one another the redemption we've experienced, to remember for one another the redemption we've experienced, and to declare to each other and to anybody else listening the redemption we've experienced. Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, Since God wants to gather a people for His glory, corporate worship is an essential part of His saving plan. This explains why it is absolutely vital for Christians to be faithful in attending public worship. It is good to worship God in private. Every Christian should maintain some regular routine of personal prayer, praise, and Bible study. But we cannot be Christians on our own. It is of the very essence of our Christianity that we worship God together, praising Him for the salvation we share in Christ. In their book, Rediscover Church, Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen put it this way, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. And we have too many Christians living in this day and age that are without a church. Oh, oh no, you, you've got a church kind of experience, but you're not participating in the gathered body of believers, and that means we're not exactly where we ought to be, and we're not experiencing what God wants us to experience as a gathered body of believers, because our worship remembers our redemption. It reflects on and thinks on and dwells on what we, we, what we have experienced through Jesus Christ. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis imagined conversations between two different demons. And one of those demons said, hey, here's the best thing we can do. We just need to prevent our charge from doing anything. Just make him apathetic. Make him think he's pious. Think he's pious, but don't let him behave in a pious way. In other words, if you can keep your charge from going to church, you have done going to worship as the church, going to gather with the church, You've done a good job. If you can keep your charge from reading the Bible, if you can keep your charge from living out their faith, then you've done a good thing. Notice this. The people of Israel were supposed to worship in such a way that their children asked questions about the worship they experienced. I'm going to meddle for just a moment. How can your children ask you anything about what's going on as in terms of experiencing redemption if they're never in a worship service with you to hear anything about the redemption you say you've experienced? The people of Israel were supposed to observe in such a way that 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 6-year-olds and 18-year-olds said, Mom and Dad, what's this about? Why are we killing the lamb? Why are we doing this with the blood? Why are we celebrating the Passover? The reason was was because they were to be evangelistic with their children and explain to them, this is what it means for us to be God's people. I'm going to make some specific applications here. And I'm going to do so with with some kindness. But I'm going to try to do so with a little bit of clarity too. I realize that the many of you that are watching us at home, you feel the need to watch at home rather than be in a crowd of people. I understand that. I understand some are trying to still say they've got surgeries coming up, health challenges, immune compromise. I realize that. And so I'm not really talking to you. But there are a lot of us and a lot of others that have watched church online for about 19 months or 20 months or so And I'm just going to tell you, because we need the gathered church to remember redemption, it's time for some of us to change out of our pajamas on Sunday mornings, to put on our Sunday clothes, and to gather back with the body of believers for worship. I'm just being honest with you. You need it. You need to be around other believers. 
There is a difference between watching church and worshiping with the church. I'm not trying to be mean, but you need it, and the, the body of Christ needs you here, and we need to see you, and you need to be seen, and that needs to be a part of who we are as followers of Jesus. You say this, because we need the gathered church to remember redemption, moms and dads, it's time for some of you to set aside the idols that are keeping you away from gathering as the church. I know too many people, I know too many parents, I know too many families who would rather be on the ball field than in the church. They'll do everything else. I mean, nothing has come back to normal, right, in life. I mean, we're not really back to normal. I don't know that there's ever a uh, pre-COVID normal coming back into our experience. But I watch sporting events and I see crowds of people. I see people at restaurants and they're full. I see people in all sorts of other venues in life, and everything appears to be, in some situations, completely pre-COVID. And yet some of those folks that'll go do those things, idolize some of those things, they won't have their kids in church on Sunday mornings, in the worship, the gathered body of believers. So I'm going to tell you something. Some of you parents that have put an idol in front of your children, whether it's sports or whether it's something else, you've made an idol. That's the problem with the people of Israel all throughout the book of Exodus. The problem with the Egyptians, they put other things in front of God. And when you put other things in front of God, don't be surprised one day when your children don't want to have anything to do with the gathered worship of the church because you didn't make it important, so it will be their tendency to find an idol as well. We'll meddle one more time, and then I promise I'll try to be done with meddling. But because we need the gathered church to remember our redemption, it's time for some of you moms and dads to bring your kids back into the gathered worship uh, with you. Some parents have said, I'm going to come to church, and I'm going to sit in the worship service, and my kid's going to go to Sunday school. And I get some of why that's happening, the way our schedule is and our church schedule is. I understand that. I understand but I don't think it's helpful for your children. I truly believe that your children, as often as possible, need to see you in the gathered worship of, with other believers. They need to hear you sing. They need to watch you worship. They need to hear you praise. And they need to be able to talk to you about the redemption that's described in the worship service. Okay, I'm done meddling. I'll let God speak to you about the convictions that need to happen in your own lives. Uh, be nice to those that, that aren't doing exactly what they ought to do. Pray for them. Encourage them. Inspire them. Remind them. Maybe tell them to watch. Let me be the one to, to, to kind of challenge from this passage of Scripture. But worship remembers redemption. And folks, if we're not here together as a body of believers to remember the redemption we've experienced, how do we expect the next generation to know at all what that's like and what that means for our salvation. How about this one? Worship celebrates redemption. We're not going to read all this in chapter 15. Chapter 15 follows the Passover story. The people of Israel were sent out. They plundered Egypt. They got to the Red Sea. You remember that? The Egyptians were behind. The Red Sea was in front. God said to Moses, hold out your arm and the Red Sea will part. And the Red Sea parted. People of Israel walked through on dry land. I mean, you got to think about this for a moment. Being a part of that horde of, of Israelites that left out of, the people of, out, of the, out of Egypt. Man, they'd seen the plagues and they had seen the Passover. And they had seen the Red Sea miracle. And they had seen Pharaoh's arm destroyed when the Red Sea went back upon itself and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. They'd seen all these things. Chapter 15, there's, a, there's kind of an interlude. 
It's a worship service. Moses sings this great grand song of rescue and redemption. In 15.20, chapter 15.20 says this, Then Miriam the prophetess, that's Moses' sister, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. I think it's safe to say Miriam was not a Baptist. Now, Michelle has played the tambourine in our worship service. Thank heavens, Michelle, for doing that. But I have not seen any of you dancing in our worship service yet. Okay, maybe us as Baptists, we'd be a little uncomfortable if we started, or some of us started, just dancing in the worship service. Celebration. Why did they dance and celebrate? Why did they do that? Because they had just witnessed the greatest act of rescue and redemption and judgment that the world had ever seen to that point in human history. They had watched things happen that you wouldn't believe if you saw with your own eyes. But they had experienced it. They had walked through it. They would seen it. Let me tell you something, folks. When we gather as the body of believers, as the church to worship, we ought to take those scowls off our faces. We ought to take those frustrated looks and those worried hearts and set them aside. And for an hour, we ought to set our lives apart to celebrate. I don't care if the music isn't exactly what you want it to be. God forbid that the music isn't exactly what you want it to be. Jesus died for your rotten, terrible, sinful soul. Regardless of whether the music is what you like or not. God saved you. He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross so that you could be forgiven and redeemed. And let me tell you, whether the songs are exactly what you want or not what you want at all, we should celebrate a Savior that loves us even when we think worship is about us. That's the problem. Worship is not about what we like or dislike. Worship is about the king who came to be a pauper, to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. Let me tell you something, folks. Worship celebrates redemption. Can I get an amen? Amen. We ought to amen. We ought to praise. We ought to thank God. Why? Because what he has done to forgive us and redeem us and cleanse us. Let me give you a final intersection. Worship invites redemption. Invites redemption. Worship not only separates us, makes us distinct from the world around us, our worship of God, but it also declares the salvation we've received to the world around us. I want you to pick this up. Chapter 12, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and we keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Listen, worship makes us distinct from the world around us. I'm not going to get into all the details of this, but over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, there have been a lot of different uh, values and philosophies regarding worship and worship services. Some of them have been seeker-sensitive. Let's attract as many people as will come so that they'll hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I understand that philosophically. But folks, worship is not about the people who are not yet here. Worship is about the body of believers who have been redeemed. It's about us being redeemed and saved. It's about our Lord who did save us. And so our worship, our worship services, 
the way they function and the way they flow are about the redemption we've, we've received. They invite us to remember that, to think on it, to reflect on it. And at times that means there are parts of our worship services that aren't necessarily for an unbeliever. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is not for an unbeliever. This is for us as the body of Christ. It's for the people who have experienced redemption. Now, with that said, one of the most beautiful things about what took place here is God said something very clear. He said that worship of me, worship of me by eating the Passover, is not for a foreigner. It means it's not for someone who's not an Israelite. And when Israel left Egypt, there were a lot of tagalongs with the people of Israel. There were a lot of other slaves, a lot of other peoples that had been uh, enslaved by Egypt, and they joined with Israel as they left. But they weren't to partake of the Passover. Why? Because they were foreigners. But did you catch what God said? If a foreigner, if a slave, wants to become an Israelite and be circumcised, they can partake of the Passover. And tell you something, folks. God always makes a way for anybody who wants to worship Him to worship Him. And our worship services, they're for us as believers to focus our attention on the God who's redeemed us. But because they're for us as believers to worship the God who's redeemed us, they invite anyone present to meet the God who has redeemed us. They invite them, they show them a pathway, a means, so that they can become a part of God's people. In just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let me say this very clearly. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized by immersion, you are welcome to participate in eating of this bread and drinking of this juice. You do not have to be a member of our church to eat and participate. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But let me pause for just a second. If you're here and you have not yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, you should not participate. This isn't for you. It's not something that you should do. On Sunday, when we have families in here, we have children in here, there are going to be some kids that are not going to participate in the Lord's Supper because they haven't yet trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is for baptized followers of Jesus Christ. If you're here and that's you and you're not a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, I'm available after the worship service. I want to talk with you about how you can become a part of God's family and participate in this beautiful act of redemption or or this beautiful act that references and remembers and celebrates and invites our redemption. Did you catch something really cool here? Verse 46, I don't know if you you read it too quickly. It said, It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. One of the reasons the the Passover is so important to the people of Israel is it remembered their rescue, but for us as the people of God, Jesus reinstituted the Passover at the Lord's table. The Passover celebration was going on in Jerusalem the week of Jesus' crucifixion. That's not coincidental. That's intentional in the plan of sovereign God. That Jesus on Passover night would be sharing bread and sharing juice with his followers. But he reinstituted the Passover to say that, hey, listen, this is not about the old covenant taking a lamb and slaughtering it. This is about the new covenant, the only lamb, the one and only lamb being slaughtered for your sins. It's a beautiful testimony to what Jesus did. And do you catch that? Not a bone shall be broken. 
Psalm 22 says the same thing. And you remember when Jesus was hanging there on the cross for your sins and for my sins? He was hanging there. He was dead. And what they would do to discover whether they were dead or not, or to make sure they were dead, they would break the bones of the criminals on the cross. They came to Jesus discovering he was already dead because he gave up his own life. And instead of breaking his bone, they pierced his side. Affirming as a testimony that Jesus is a pure and spotless lamb that has the right and the responsibility to take our sins away, to cleanse us and to redeem us and to renew us uh, for spiritual life. And you know what that means? That means you and I as followers of Jesus get the privilege to celebrate our redemption. Get the privilege to invite others to participate in our redemption. Do you realize that this act of rescue and redemption the people of Israel experienced was an act of judgment? Yes, God took care of the people of Israel, but He judged all of Egypt because they enslaved the people of God, because they disbelieved God. Do you recognize that's exactly what happened on the cross? God not only provided the means for us to have redemption, He did so by judging your sins and my sins. He did so by punishing Jesus in your place and in my place, thereby making a way that you and I can be forgiven and redeemed. There are sometimes we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we do so with a sense of somberness and reflection on our sinfulness. There are sometimes we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we do so with a soul filled of, with gratitude and praise. I think we're in the latter. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that, uh, those elements of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to close in just a moment with a, an invitation story. But uh, I want you to partake of this Lord's Supper as an act of worship, a, as a reflection of your redemption. So if you're a saved follower of Jesus Christ, take that tear tab. If you wouldn't mind, pull it back so you can get the wafer. And pull that wafer out and get it ready. And then pull that other tear tab back so that you can drink the juice. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember Jesus, the Passover lamb. Jesus, whose body was broken on our behalf. Jesus, who took our sins. He was punished for us. And guess what we get to do tonight? We get to celebrate the redemption we've experienced. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for dying on our behalf, for your body being broken for our sins. In Jesus' name. I love it that the Bible says it didn't stop there. It didn't stop with Jesus' body being broken. His blood was shed. And if you never noticed it before in the Passover experience, the blood was wiped on the top of the doorpost and on the sides and it was on the bottom. And if you draw straight lines there, there's a cross. I think that's intentional in God's providence. So that when Jesus, thousands of years later, 1,500 years later, would hang on that Roman cross, on that cruel cross, uh, suspended between earth and heaven, His blood was shed so that you and I can experience forgiveness and redemption and new life. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your blood that was shed so that we could have forgiveness and redemption. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be blessed and honored as we remember the redemption that we have experienced uh, from your glory. In Jesus' name. As Eddie continues to play, let me close with this story. I recently listened to an audio book, and I'll tell more about it later. 
a lady by the name of um, Virginia Perdan. She grew up in Romania. She grew up in a home that was not altogether great. She was essentially adopted by her aunt's family. She wasn't uh, legal. She was legally theirs, but that wasn't her mom. And so she was ostracized, kind of an outcast in the family. She grew up wanting to know the truth, wanting to seek out the truth. And in communist Romania, that was very difficult. So she ended up growing up to become a communist lawyer in pursuit of the truth. As you can imagine, that was a difficult prospect because they didn't really want the truth to be found in communist Romania in the late 1970s and early 1980s. One of her clients invited her to church one day. And when she went to church that particular day, the preacher was preaching on the text, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that struck her at her heart, and she became a follower of Jesus in communist Romania. She ended up spending... Uh, the, the next several years of her adult life defending Christians and churches against the communist regime in a country that was hostile to Christianity. So she was targeted and attacked at times she was beaten. One particular occasion, she and her two daughters were put under house arrest for more than a month with little to nothing to eat, couldn't go out, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. And they finally let them go. It happened to be on a Sunday morning. She saw her and her girls, and they were able to leave the house. And the first thing she did, she got her girls dressed, and she went to worship with the gathered body of believers at her local church. Folks, I'm glad you're here with us today. Folks at home, let me invite you back. Back with the gathered body of believers to worship with each other and celebrate the redemption that we have together experienced. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you need to experience His redemption, come meet me at the altar or talk with me after the worship service. Let's praise God for what He's done to save us. Stand with me if you will. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for not gathering to worship You. Forgive us, Lord, for when we gather to care more about what we like than the God that we love. Forgive us, Lord, that when we gather, we don't come with the right attitude and the right heart and the right expression. Forgive us, Lord, that sometimes when we gather, we don't think a thought about the salvation we've received. Father, we're your people. It's hard to be your people sometimes. I don't mean that in the sense of it's wrong. I mean that in the sense of, God, we get it wrong so many times, just like the people of Israel did all throughout the book of Exodus. But Father, we come to you in this moment worshiping you, confessing where we've gotten it wrong, asking you to forgive us. And in so doing, Lord God, we remember the redemption that we experienced on that conversion date, whatever, however many years ago it was for us. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness, for redemption, and thank you especially for the privilege of worshiping you. Father, hear our praise and be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.